Welcome back. We are in uh, 2022. Well, historically, we're well before that. This is our first episode of the Scramble for Africa in 2022. How are you doing, Dave Power? I am well, thank you. I want to introduce you by name in case anyone is joining us in 2022. If you are joining us in 2022, you may want to go back and catch up. <laughs> We're not exactly uh, doing a review here. <laughs> We're just jumping in. But we did, uh, by way of review, uh, if you were listening to episode 9D uh, in way back in 2021, we ended up, we were talking about Cecil Rhodes in South Africa during the Scramble for Africa and Cecil Rhodes um, and his sponsorship of the so-called Jameson Raid. And in fact, one of the last things you said in that episode, Dave, was you said, and he pretty much caused the Boer War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, the Boer War, um, we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we... Um, You've got, you know, a lot of the military history uh, kind of prepared. Just to, a couple of things. We've we've talked about Hobson, um, you know, the author of the text, of the bourgeois text about imperialism, to use Lenin's uh, description. Even the bourgeois writer Hobson understands. But Hobson uh, was a bit of an anti-imperialist. I guess he was more than a bit of an anti-imperialist, right? Mm-hmm. Um And he said in 1900, we are fighting in order to place a small international oligarchy of mine owners and speculators in power in Pretoria. So that's a sense of the stakes. Um, The the concerns from the point of view of the British uh, military, um, the British uh, are worried mainly about Germany here. Um, And Germany, uh, since the Berlin Congress of 1884 kind of got a foothold um, in in Africa and in imperialism and in terms of these kinds of naval, naval gunboat diplom- diplomatic expeditions and so on. And uh, so the British now are kind of worried that um, Germany is going to make some kind of alliance with their South African colonists the the boers the dutch who have as much probably in common culturally with the <clears throat> with the germans as they do with with the british right so to right. quote Magub- uh, magubane is quoting remember i'm using a lot of magubane the making of a racist state um and magubane quotes one author saying the boers were not only blocking the creation of a british dominated consolidation but seemed bent on introducing germany into southern africa so this is uh, enough to sort of get the British uh, a little bit alarmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, they were equally alarmed when uh, President Kruger proposed building a railway uh, from the Transvaal through Portuguese East Africa to Delagoa Bay. And the reason that worries them is that's not British-controlled territory. So they would avoid Natal, they would avoid Cape Town, which means they would also avoid British tariffs and they could possibly make direct contact with the Germans. So, yeah, the Boer War, I didn't realize in South Africa, it's officially called the South African War, making the point that all South Africans, white and black, were affected by the war and that many of them were participants. So I know I've... I've, uh, 
disagreed with you somewhat about Hobson and, and Lennon, but boy, in this case, they're dead on. It, it's about the gold mines and, and the diamond mines. And that makes the Transvaal the, the richest nation in Southern Africa uh, by far. But they don't have the manpower and they don't have the industrial base to develop these resources or you know, exploit, steal them on their own. So we've seen in the previous episodes, the Boers and the Transvaal very reluctantly had to accept the immigration of foreigners, which they call Outlanders, outlanders uh, mainly English-speaking, who are, who are there looking for, uh, to make their fortunes and, and to find jobs. So the numbers of outlanders are rising, and there's the threat that they will exceed the number of Boers. And this leads to confrontations between them. We're talking about uh, demographics, voting rights, and the Boers being afraid that they're going to be swamped, outvoted, uh, culturally assimilated. And then, of course, this all comes to a head in the, in the Jameson raid. And, and you can't blame the Boers for not trusting the British at all. So President Kruger began re-equipping the Transvaal army. And uh, guess who he bought weapons from? Germany. 37,000 of their latest Mauser rifles, model 1895. 40 to 50 million rounds of ammunition. <laughs> Are these better than British weapons at this point, or is it all about the same? Uh, these are slightly better. They are a little bit better, yeah. Yeah, 1895 is like the latest model. Yeah. And he also bought uh, guns from Krupp, K-R-U-P-P. If you have not heard of them, they are the preeminent producers of heavy artillery in the world, the envy of other countries. And when it comes to international arms sales, they're way out in front. Uh, they will sell to anybody, but they're very happy to sell to the Boers. So by October of 1899, Transvaal State Artillery had 73 heavy uh, guns, including some really massive uh, Crusoe Fortress guns. These are French, so another country that will happily sell you weapons. Um, they also have 25 uh, 37-millimeter Nordenfeldt guns, and the Boers also got Maxim guns. These are uh, large-caliber, uh, belt-fed, water-cooled, uh, special type of artillery. It's called an autocannon at the time. Basically, it fires small artillery shells, 450 rounds a minute. Uh, the British nicknamed it the pom-pom gun because of the sound it makes. And the Boers' Maxim guns were bigger than the British Maxim guns and, and better. So uh, they're gearing up, and this will not be your usual colonial war. Uh, it won't be the Zulus this time. Britain doesn't particularly want a war, at least the British government doesn't. The Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, personally has nothing but contempt for jingoism and jingoists. Uh, he's also not certain about the abilities of the British Army. They did not perform particularly well in the First Boer War. Um, so he's got reservations. 
some are moral. He doesn't believe we should be going to war for, you know, stupid reasons. He's got practical concerns. I don't know if our army is up to it. However, it's a question of prestige. And it's amazing how often prestige overrules everything, right? It's like, well, we probably shouldn't. And it could be a bit of a, you know, difficult, but I guess we have to just because. Salisbury also uh, doesn't like the Boers. He doesn't like their treatment of native Africans. I know you'll find that slightly ironic. Who was the one who learned Dutch and everything? Oh, that was Milner, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, the Boers don't care for him all that much either. (laughs) Um, But he's referring, Salisbury's referring to the treaty at the end of their the British defeat in the first war against the Boers, the London Convention of 1884. And he regrets some of the clauses in there that say it's really in the interest of uh, slavery. So there's a small group in the British government who, oh, it's that liberal attitude that, you know, when you do slavery, it's really, really bad. Whereas the forms that we have are modern and progressive and in the best interests of the people being forced to labor. So the British government uh, basically ignored the advice of their generals, including your friend Wolseley, and they declined to send substantial reinforcements to South Africa. Uh, One reason, the Secretary for War, uh, Lord Lansdowne, didn't believe that the Boers were preparing for war. He also thought that sending large numbers of troops would be too aggressive a posture, that it might even you know, derail uh, negotiations for a settlement or, or even encourage the Boers to attack. So the end, the end result is that the British army is uh, undermanned in South Africa. They're not really in a position to do much. So there are political maneuverings, negotiations, trying to reach a compromise. You know, what do we do about the rights of outlanders in the Transvaal? Who's going to control the gold mining industry? Um, Should the Transvaal and the Orange Free State be incorporated into a British federation? And just turn it around and look at the Boer position. So we're afraid of all this influx of outlanders. We've also experienced the Jameson raid, so we know that we can't trust you an inch, and and given the chance, you will take power over us by force. So we're staring at the eventual loss of control over our republics. So the negotiations in uh, June of 1899 didn't go well. They were held in uh, Bloemfontein. And they failed on the issue of full voting rights for the outlanders in the Transvaal. So you have British colonial secretary Joseph Chamberlain on one side, and you have the president of the South African Republic, Paul Kruger, on the other. And with the failure of negotiations, Kruger gives the British an ultimatum. He gives them 48 hours to withdraw all their troops from the borders of both the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And this ultimatum is quite clear, withdraw or it's war. And withdrawal, of course, would have to include Kimberley 
and Johannesburg sold the gold and the diamonds, and you know that's not going to happen. Has that ever, has that ever worked in history? Like, An ultimatum? Yeah, or against the British Empire. <laughs> oh no! It usually results in their ships bombing. Actually, they're the ones who are usually giving the yeah, ultimatums. Yeah, that it works. When, it usually works when they give them. We're yeah, 50, our our well reasoned and and uh, moderate <laughs> ultimatum, as opposed to their intolerant conditions and. <laughs> You've read this yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. But Kruger must have known that that was not going to work. No, and he's already ordered uh, commandos to the border of Natal. And he also knows that the British garrisons are very small and far from the border. So he's he's feeling in, in a good position. So he's giving himself 48 hours to get ready, basically. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine that he thought they would withdraw. So he's yeah. decided on, on war. Now, the British newspapers had a good laugh and, of course, yeah. published some excellent cartoons, you know, about, you know, the Boers presenting an ultimatum. So you can imagine uh, Britannia or, or the British Lion, you know, uh, looking behind them at some tiny little angry Boer shaking his fist. But... Lord Salisbury had to go and explain to Queen Victoria, um, we're not ready for a war. In fact, he said, we have no army capable of meeting even a second-class continental power. So she's wondering, well, why is that? Well, army reform has been a an issue in Britain since the 1870s, but they, they keep putting it off because they don't want to spend money on a larger, more professional army. Also, there's the, the traditional British dislike of a large home army, which they're afraid the government will use to, you know, impose their measures on the people. So the British don't want to pay for an army. They don't trust the army. They would rather invest in the Navy. So when the time comes, well, they don't have an army that, that's ready. And what they do send to Cape Town <laughs> is... Uh, insufficient let's put it that way so once the war begins the british sent three divisions of troops to cape town under general sir redvers buller some of these guys have the greatest names meanwhile the boers have their own troops and foreign volunteers begin to arrive to fight alongside the boers they're like uh david against goliath and there are plenty of foreigners coming into the country now, not to find jobs at the diamond mines or the gold mines, but to fight for the Boers. Uh, about 400 men a month. And these volunteers are coming from all over, all over the world. Uh, there were a total of, I think, over 7,000 that eventually joined the Boers. Uh, Dutch, not surprisingly, Scandinavians, Germans. French, Poles and Italians, plenty of Irish, as you can imagine, uh, even Russians, Greeks, and Australians. And I mean, this is 1899? Yep. Yeah, so these could be veterans of multiple uh, Scramble for Africa battles in the 80s, right? I mean, in the 1880s. Yeah. Yeah, some seasoned. of them. Soldiers of fortune, some idealists. Because I mean, there there weren't there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of war in Europe um, after no, the Napoleon the Napoleonic Wars, right? I mean, I guess there was the short one in eighteen seventy, but like most of the wars 
were in i guess africa at this you know at this for a yeah. couple of decades before this yeah the last major european war uh before 1900 would have been uh i think the russians and the turks in in 1878 yeah 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 you're right so the boers had the advantage in numbers initially which you don't think of but they had 33,000 troops and the british only had 13,000 also they had the advantage in mobility so they invaded natal uh where the british commander uh general colonel general white uh, split his forces and sent a brigade of troops to a coal mining town called Dundee. The Boers began shelling Dundee from a hill, and the British attacked the hill, drove the Boers off at the cost of 446 casualties, including the major commanding the attack. So first indications are that um, this is not the kind of war the British are used to. So the invasion of Natal, <clears throat> I beg your pardon, small engagements, the Boers are trying to cut communications. The British win a small battle at Elenslakte and capture a Boer general. And this involved a rarity, a cavalry charge by British lancers and dragoons that actually made contact. I mean, they reached the men that they were charging mostly because of poor visibility and rain. <laughs> so that's just, it doesn't happen anymore, really. Well, it, they keep trying. Yeah. They love their cavalry charges. So and... this is a real, this is another one, like from a military history perspective, this is another one of these transitions between older and newer ways of warfare, right? Like Exactly. Some right. of the British generals are trying to refight Waterloo yeah, yeah. With their dashing cavalry charges. I read this American military officer or analyst. He was. It was a book about like Soviet warfare, but a lot of it was historical. And he was talking about how Napoleon's Napoleon's like the last classical military um, commander, where the whole goal is to concentrate your troops against a less dense concentration of their troops and he was just really good at getting that concentration together to smash a, a smaller force and then with machine guns and like with this kind of revolution in firepower that's happening uh when you concentrate your troops they just get massacred so it's oh it's yeah a, it's a different uh, it's a new thing and they're they haven't quite wrap their heads around you know starting in the u.s civil war but they exactly. haven't wrapped their head heads around it fully even now you would think that the crimean war and the american civil war would teach them enough about you know mass firepower and if you want to you know run across an open field at these guys you're going to get slaughtered yeah yeah so silly cavalry charge uh the only reason i added it was for that point and also uh curious two of the two of the uh foreign volunteers were captured there. One was uh, Willem, the brother of Piet Mondrian, the, <laughs> the artist, and the other was uh, Cornelis van, van Gogh, or Van Gogh. Um, like Vincent's? Vincent's friend? brother. <laughs> so there's two famous artists' brothers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, the British win their little victory, but General White uh, panics and orders a retreat to Ladysmith. And the Boers arrived with some of their artillery. Uh, General White recovered his courage and decided to attack. Lost 140 killed and 1,000 captured. And what's left of the British are now inside the town of Ladysmith, where they are besieged. So the siege of Ladysmith begins. In the northwest, there's a British colonel we've met before, Colonel uh, Robert Baden-Powell. And he's got 1,200 men. And he's thinking of going on the offensive to create a diversion. But 6,000 Boers under General Cronje, Piet Cronje, arrived. And this begins the siege of Maffa King. And this siege is very famous. Uh, Baden-Powell had, as I said, only 1,200 men. He also began losing men to uh, artillery, to illness. And he was so shorthanded that he organized the young boys of the town and had them do auxiliary duties, right? Like carrying water and ammunition, standing guard, doing all sorts of jobs. And this is the origin of the Boy Scout movement because Baden-Powell proved that young boys could be very useful as paramilitaries. So let's start training them for the next war, I guess. Uh, 360 kilometers south of there, uh, Kimberley, the diamond mining capital, had a population of 40,000, but only 5,000 of them were armed. And that's when 7,500 Boers arrived, set up their artillery, and began shelling the town. So there was a lieutenant colonel named Kekovich in command of the British, but then Cecil Rhodes arrived. <laughs> Your friend Rhodes decided that I'm going to help in the town's defense. So there are different versions of how useful he was. Uh, one, one wiki page says that he was a prominent figure in the town's defense. Like he stood there and looked prominent? He was important, yeah. <laughs> they don't say how. Uh, but there's another source that says uh, he was more of a liability than an asset. And the military officers just found him intolerable. Obviously, he, he felt qualified to uh, give them orders. Uh, that's about the end of Rhodes' career. He died in, in 1902. Wow. So the most prominent townspeople, including Rhodes, uh, sheltered in a building called the Sanatorium. The poorer residents, notably the black population, had no shelter at all from the shelling. So when you hear the casualties from shelling, you, you know who's being killed and injured. So we have three sieges going on. Uh, Maffa King, Kimberley, and Ladysmith in, in Natal. And the Boers have made a huge mistake because they're committing their armies to sieges that will go on for a long time. So this is where you discover that the Boers don't actually have a grand strategy. They're just going to do what they did in the first war and go after the nearest British forces, uh, harass them, and take advantage of British mistakes. But they have just given the British an enormous gift. They have given them time to recover, and they have left their armies sitting idle outside these towns, lobbing shells into them. So um, this is another this is another military theory mistake, I guess, right? Like mobility and the role the role of mobility and uh, 
Uh, yeah, so static. Throughout the whole war, the Boers are going to be rather too defensive. But that's why they're fighting, right? They're fighting. Yeah, and it's also defend. inevitable that you're going to fight that way if if it's if the British are invading what you see as your right. Land. That's why you signed up to fight to defend your land. So they really don't have any desire to conquer British territory. So it reminds me of the American Civil War, right? Right, and. And it's it's funny because it seems like both the Boers and the U.S. Southern uh, have a lot in common. But um, it yes. seems like one <laughs> one of the things they have in common is they're actually better on they're better aggressively than they are defensively. But they seem to prefer you know they strategically are on the defensive. Even well, and there's another similarity. It seems that they are pinning their hopes on foreign intervention. Right. Right. I mean, the Boers aren't fools. They know how how powerful Britain is. Yeah. They're pretty confident that they can embarrass them on the battlefield repeatedly. But they're right. definitely hoping for Germany. Germany, possibly France, you know, but definitely Germany to step in and and save them. So they want victories for the prestige to make it look like they're winning, which would encourage Germany to come in and help them. And it's a it's a pipe dream, just like the because the Germans have already agreed, right? They they've made by this point multiple ag- arrangements with the British about how to divide Africa, and this is exactly not, this is exactly. not included. <laughs> this and, is not, and in they the... have no desire to get into a naval war with Britain, yeah, which would you know presumably cost them their new colonies and also leave them vulnerable to. France and Russia. So, no, it's not really going to happen. So that's the first phase of the war where the Boers settle down in these useless sieges and waste their opportunity. And now we get to a phase where the empire strikes back. I, I'm sorry, so, I had to... So you did, to do that. you did Star Trek because of the tre- Great Trek, and now yep. you're doing Star Wars because the empire strikes back. And then remember, Cecil Rhodes wanted to conquer the stars, so we've got like a full circle here. (laughs) We have. So General Buller now has his army in the Cape, and he decides he's going to drive straight on Bloemfontein and Pretoria, the the capitals of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. But then he decides to split his forces so that he can relieve the three sieges. He's going to send Lord Methuen to follow the railway north, and he's supposed to relieve Kimberley and Maffa King. Uh, Methuen wins a couple of bloody skirmishes, and then he gets to the Modder River, and they fight a battle there. And it's a significant battle because the Boers change their tactics for a very practical reason. So traditionally, in, especially in the first Anglo-Boer War, the Boers would go up on a hill, or in their language, a kopje, a cop. So they'd go up on a hill, they would put their horses on the back of the hill, and then when the British approached, they would shoot at them. When the British got too close, especially if they come with a bayonet charge, the Boers would then run down the back of the hill, get on their horses, and leave. So this was very successful in the first war. But the Boers noticed something. When you're shooting downhill, it's called plunging fire, 
if you miss the guy that you are shooting at, the bullet's going to go into the ground, meaning it's wasted. The Boers also noticed that the British could also find cover on the slopes of the hill, you know, behind boulders or scrub and bushes. So as they climb the hill, you can't always get a clean shot at them. So a Boer named Cous de la Rey persuaded General Crony to try something new. Let's dig a trench on the veld, on the flat plain, at the base of the hill. We'll leave our horses on the other side of the hill, but we'll be in front of the hill rather than on top of that. Now we're firing our bullets on a flat trajectory. And that means if we miss the guy we're shooting at, we have a good chance of hitting the guy behind him or in the third rank behind him. And we can also fire a longer distance. And this was a pretty significant change. Uh, and at the Battle of Modder River, uh, it worked. The only thing that prevented a, a disaster for the British is that the Boers opened fire too soon. The British started taking casualties, couldn't advance. Eventually, they worked their way around the flank and the Boers retreated. The Boers took, I think, 80 casualties. The British lost 71 killed and over 400 wounded. Th this is a sign of things to come. And as you say, for future military tacticians, something to consider, something to learn a lesson from, which, of course, they didn't. From the 10th to the 15th of December of 1899, this is known as the Black Week for the British Army because... Everything goes wrong. There's a battle at Stormberg. General Gataker is trying to advance towards Blomfontein. He's got 3,000 men transported by train. They got lost. There's some more incredible British leadership here. They got lost. How do you get lost on a train? Well, you get off the train, and you are heading in the direction that you think you're supposed to be headed for, but you're going the wrong way, so you get lost. And then you find some Boers on top of a hill called the Kissyberg, and all he has to do is march around the hill, cut off, threaten to cut the Boers off, and they will have to retreat. So instead, the infantry rushes forward and storms the hill. Uh, they run into a vertical rock face, which they can't climb. Uh, a few soldiers manage to scramble to the top, and they got hit by uh, artillery, British artillery which was shelling the top of the hill. So the British were successfully shelling their own troops uh, who had trouble finding what they were shooting at because the rising sun was in their eyes. So most of Gettaker's force starts to fall back in disorder. He gives the order to retreat, and that's when mounted Boer reinforcements uh, show up on both sides of them and attack. So the British infantry, exhausted and having taken all these casualties, um, as they retreat, they're being covered by their own mounted infantry and by artillery. They lost two of their 15-pounder guns. These are heavy, heavy artillery. And once the retreat has reached uh, a town or village called Molteno, that's when General Gataker realized that, oh, we left over 600 men on the Kissyberg Hill. We managed not to give them the word to retreat. So these guys are cut off and they're forced to surrender. So that's the first disaster of Black, Black Week. 
the next one is the Battle of Magers Fontaine. So Lord Methuen has 14,000 British troops. He's going to launch a dawn attack on a Boer position in order to relieve the siege of Kimberley. So de la Rey and Cronier repeated their trick with the trenches at the bottom of the hill instead of being on top of it. Uh, the British lost 120 killed, 690 wounded. And there is no relief for the siege of Kimberley or Mafeking. Forget that one. General Buller has the main force, 21,000 men, and he heads for Ladysmith to, you know, break open the siege there. So he's trying to cross the Tugela River, and he's facing uh, a commander named Louis Botha and 8,000 Boers. So with a combination of uh, artillery fire and very accurate rifle fire, the Boers repelled all the British attempts to cross the river. So Buller breaks off the battle, again abandons many wounded men, doesn't get the order to retreat to a few isolated units, which results in them and 10 field guns being captured by both his men. So Buller loses 145 killed, 1,200 missing or wounded. And the Boers suffered 40 casualties, including eight killed. The, the reason that I include these casualty figures are because they're the exact opposite of the casualty figures we've been giving for some of the other imperial wars the British have been in. It's usually the other way around, right? The British suffer yeah. eight killed and 40 wounded, meanwhile killing 2,000 of the enemy. Well, now the roles are reversed, and... Britain is stunned. So is this a lot of equipment? Is this just equipment? Like, No, this is partly equipment, partly stupidity, and partly, as you point out, they're not fighting the right kind of war. It's like they haven't got it through their heads who they are fighting. Right? right? These guys have weapons as good or better than yours. Right. They use the land better. And you're going about this completely the wrong way. Yeah. So back in Britain, the country is stunned. This, this isn't, these are not the results that they expected. And, and the uh, idea settles in that this is not going to be as easy as they thought. It's going to require reinforcements. So as back in the home country, they start to gear up, General Buller tries again. This leads to the Battle of Spionkop, so Spion Hill. Uh, British troops captured the summit by surprise. This is uh, 24th of January, 1900. So attack it just before dawn or at dawn, and they capture the summit of the hill. But as the morning fog lifts, they realize too late that they're on a hill that's overlooked by higher hills surrounding them, and those hills have Boer artillery emplacements on them. So the Boers now begin shelling the top of Spionkop, and we have the usual poor communication between General Buller and his commanders. So contradictory orders are issued. One order tells the men to get off the hill, and another order sends fresh reinforcements to defend it. So Buller loses 350 killed, nearly 1,000 wounded, and has to retreat across the Tugela back into British territory again. This is a, a, another disaster, and it's going to have uh, multiple uh, impacts. And just on a, on a personal note, uh, in the, gosh, quite a few years ago, uh, I was a guest, a, a friend took me to see a soccer game, 
football game at uh, Anfield. This is the stadium in Liverpool. So I went to see the Liverpool soccer team play. And that stadium has been around since 1892, which means it was already around when the Boer War was on. So the person who brought me, we stood in, in the main grandstand, but he was pointing out the end zone to me where the rowdiest fans were. And that end zone is called the Cop, K-O-P. It's named after Spion Cop. And I, I'm pretty sure they still call it that. <laughs> I was just looking at it, photos of it online. It looks like, it looks like it's probably been updated since. Um, oh, I, yeah. There's been a few renovations since 1892. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, General Buller has lost the confidence of his men. His name is Redvers Buller. So they start calling him Reverse Buller because of his uh, habit of retreating and going in the wrong direction. So he's replaced as commander in chief by Field Marshal Lord Roberts. And Roberts very quickly organizes an entirely new team for his headquarters staff. And he starts picking the guys he wants. So he gets his chief of staff from the Sudan campaign, Lord Kitchener. He gets uh, Frederick Russell Burnham, the chief of scouts, who is an American scout from the Klondike. He gets George Henderson from the Staff College. He gets Neville Bowles Chamberlain from Afghanistan. And he gets William Nicholson for his military secretary. And this is a guy who fought in Afghanistan and Burma. So he's getting experienced officers rather than senior officers. So there are some senior officers who will be a little annoyed that they're being passed over. But Roberts has realized, okay, I need professionals here. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to change our strategy pretty dramatically. Very quickly, he changes tactics. So he outflanks the Boers around Magris Fontaine. And while the Boers are moving, the British cavalry under Major General John French reach Ladysmith and lift the siege. Uh, General French we will see again in World War I when he is commander of the British Expeditionary Force to the continent. So now the, the Boers are on the move, pursued by Robert's force, 7,000 strong. That's the, the Boers, 7,000. And they're pulling back, heading for Blomfontein. So there's a battle at Pardeberg, and Roberts succeeded in surrounding General Kranji's Boer army. They attacked from the front again. I'm not saying Roberts is a genius. They try some of the same stupid things. Uh, the frontal attacks are uncoordinated and are repulsed by the Boers. But Roberts has basically surrounded the Boer army and is bombarding them. For 10 days, the bombardment went on, uh, and both sides, unfortunately, used the Modder River as their main water supply, and it was pretty thoroughly polluted by then, which resulted in many of the men getting typhoid, and a lot of them died of it. General Kranji was forced to surrender with only 4,000 of his men. So that's the first real British success and it comes by movement and outflanking the Boers. Uh, General Buller is still in the field. He makes a fourth attempt to relieve Ladysmith and finally has learned a few lessons. Rather than sending a wall of men to be shot down, the British will advance in small rushes, 
covered by rifle fire from behind. So the kind of thing that you see in, I don't know what, SWAT team action in TV shows and, right? We're going to fire to keep the enemy's heads down while a small group of you rush forward. And then you take up a position and you fire while the next group rushes forward. And they use the ground uh, much better. And with these new tactics, he finally is able to defeat Botha and enter Lady Smith and relieve it. Which I guess you can only do with uh, with rifles that you don't need to load from the front and so on. So this oh, is yeah. Also, uh, yeah, it's a rate of fire yeah. kind of thing. So now it's the Boers' turn to be demoralized. Uh, I mean, the British just have too many men already. By this stage, there's 180,000 British troops. Um, and the sieges have failed. Two of them have been relieved, and the third, Maffa King, has not uh, fallen. In fact, Roberts is able to capture Blomfontein, capital of the Orange Free State, and then send a small force to relieve Maffa King. So after a 217-day a day siege, Maffa King is relieved, and that leads to wild celebrations in Brittany. Uh, in Britain, like this is some major victory that we've just pulled <laughs> off. So they can... They can just keep, this is the problem with the British, right? They can just keep sending troops. They can just keep sending more and more. Yeah, it reminds me of the the uh, the Romans, actually. Mo- most of their wars begin with disastrous defeats, mm-hmm. and then they just gear up, uh, you know, call on their massive reserves of manpower and equipment, yeah. and then send overwhelming force and crush you. I mean, it also reminds me of the Philippines war that was happening at the same time, right? Like mm. the Americans just kept sending more and more. Well, there's more similarities. Yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. more similarities coming up. Yeah. yeah uh, General Roberts moves on. He captures Johannesburg and Pretoria. So the capital of the Transvaal and he captures Pretoria without a fight. The Boers are not going to you know, stand a siege on the defensive side. At this stage, Robert's biggest problems are typhoid from the polluted water at Paderberg and supplies for his men. But on the 3rd of September, 1900, Roberts declares the war is over and the South African Republic is formally annexed. Where's Kruger, though? Like, did Kruger Kruger's surrender? Gone into, no, Kruger's no. gone into hiding. But, you know, nobody told the remaining Boers in arms that the war is over. Yeah, so it's not like uh, Robert Lee and meeting Grant and no, surrender. No, uh, Kruger is in uh, Portuguese East Africa. He's in he's in Mozambique, and and some of the Boer fighters have done the same. They're so demoralized that they've basically given up. But there are plenty of others who have not finished fighting, and they're going to change to a new style of well, an old style of war for them. They're going to go to guerrilla war. So 1,500 Boers under Christian de Wet attack the waterworks at Blomfontein. They ambush a heavily escorted convoy. They, they capture seven guns, 117 wagons, and 428 British troops, on top of ca- uh, causing 155 British casualties. Uh, there's a battle at Diamond Hill. Roberts attacks the Boer army under Botha. The British capture the hill, but it's not a defeat because Botha inflicts 162 casualties on the British before retreating. So here's where the large size of the territory being fought over benefits the Boers. 
because the core of the Boer fighters under Botha can go through the Drakensberg Mountains into the high veld, as it's called, the high plateaus of the Transvaal. And the Boer fighters in the Orange Free State can retreat into the Brandwater Basin. This is a fertile area in the northeast of the Free State. Uh, that one is more of a temporary sanctuary because the mountain passes can be occupied by the British, and, and they do. But these guys can still escape. Uh, I think a British general named Hunter, Archibald Hunter, does trap some Boers, about 4,500, in, in the basin. Captures a lot of equipment as well. But the guys who surrender are the ones who really don't want to fight anymore. It's like the fight's gone out of them, so they're going to stay in one place until they can be surrounded and captured. The more determined ones, like Duet, accompanied by President Stein of the Free State, those guys escape and they're still at large. And are they still being resup like how are they being resupplied by Germany or are they just You capturing? know, that's a good question. I yeah. I don't know where they're getting their stuff. Cer certainly the British captured a lot of equipment, but the Boer forces are now much smaller, so it doesn't take as much ammunition. Right. You know, to keep them. And in their guerrilla war, I don't hear as much about the Boers using their artillery. So it's basically the old style yeah. commando groups, a whole bunch of guys on horseback with their rifles. And they can capture an awful lot of stuff from the British. Yeah. So yeah. I imagine they're resupplying in, in that way. Uh, Lord Roberts had proclaimed an amnesty. So he's saying the war is over. Uh, amnesty for everybody who takes an oath of neutrality and returns quietly to their home. And the estimate is that about twelve to 14,000 uh, of the Boer, I don't know if they're all fighters, but twelve to 14,000 Boers took the oath between March and June. But now the British are discovering, as with any guerrilla war, that the only territory they control is the ones that their columns of troops physically occupy. You've captured the Boer capitals, but these commando groups are carrying out raids against your railways, against your supply bases, and against the convoys that you send, you know, to bring supplies forward. And the, the Boers will avoid major battles and keep their casualties very light. And many of these groups are fighting in or near districts from which the, the members have been recruited, so they have like personal knowledge of the local terrain. They know the towns. They also know where they can find local support that will help to feed and supply them. And they also know how to live off the land. And, and they're not being centrally directed. They're basically acting against the British wherever and whenever possible. So at this stage, the British have a quarter of a million troops and they can't find the enemies that they're supposed to fight. And that's getting expensive, I guess. Uh, expensive and frustrating because they're not having, the Boers are having the successes. Um, in May of 1900, 500 British troops surrender uh, at Lindley. Uh, Heilbronn, a large convoy with its escort, captured. 1,500 British casualties in less than 10 days. And in December of 1900, de la Rey and another commando leader, Christian Bayers, 
uh, attacked a British brigade at Nuitgedacht and mauled it. They just tore them apart. Now, these, these look spectacular, but it's not going to win the war for the British, right? The, the attacks have no central plan. They're not really organized. There's no long-term objective. We're just hitting the British where and when we can. But the British don't like this, and they're going to adopt new tactics. Uh, Roberts hands over control to Kitchener, who brings in several uh, new ways of fighting. Uh, armored trains, but his main innovation, blockhouses. The British are going to build blockhouses at strategic points to control movement. So a blockhouse is built to house between six and eight soldiers. It's solidly built so that it can stop rifle fire. Each one, well, each one is going to cost about a thousand pounds, which is an incredible amount of money in 1900. And it takes about three months to build them. The British are going to build 8,000 blockhouses. Normally, you would think this kind of defensive, you know, static defense would be a mistake, but they're really surprisingly effective. He, he puts them on bridge crossings. They're linked to each other by barbed wire. And behind them, 50,000 troops plus 16,000 Africans uh, as armed guards who are on night patrols. So when the Boers are trying to move from one place to another, they have to get between the blockhouses and past the barbed wire fences without getting caught because that'll bring a reaction from the troops that are posted around there. So he's limiting Boer movement. And then based on these lines of blockhouses, the British will organize sweeps. So a continuous line of troops who will sweep across the veldt they're supported by mounted columns who are much more mobile and they're chasing or, or basically driving the Boer raiders uh, in, in the direction that they want and sometimes pinning them against the lines of the blockhouses. There are at least 20,000 Africans, armed Africans in these mobile groups and the British will use a lot of fox hunting anal analogies for this uh, type of warfare, for these sweeps. In addition to that, though, Kitchener adopts some controversial uh, policies. One of them, the scorched earth policy. In order to deny supplies to the Boer commandos, the British troops are going to go through the countryside and they're going to burn crops. They're going to burn farmhouses. They're going to take the families prisoner and they're going to move them away from their lands so that they cannot help the Boer commandos. And those families are going to be interned in concentration camps. So there we are back in Cuba and the Philippines, and it's the same tactics. I think we were pretty clear that when the Spanish were doing it in Cuba, that the British were highly offended at this inhuman treatment. <laughs> How dare they? Yeah, but now it's okay. Uh, they're they're going to call them 
what they are, concentration camps. Uh, they're originally set up as refugee camps. They wanted some place for civilian families who'd been forced to abandon their homes for whatever reason. I guess uh, loyalists. But Kitchener basically wants to prevent the Boers from resupplying. So tens of thousands of women and children are forcibly moved into the concentration camps. 45 tented camps built for Boer internees, 64 more for black Africans. So uh, indentured workers and slaves, basically, of the Boers. And they're, they're separated based on race. And I think the treatment in the camps also differed based on race. They're poorly administered right from the get-go, and they become increasingly overcrowded when Kitchener's troops start implementing the internment strategy on a vast scale. The conditions were, as you might have guessed, uh, pretty terrible. Uh, most of it is neglect, poor hygiene, bad sanitation, unreliable supply. And of course, there's the argument, well, the supply lines are being disrupted by the Boers. Yeah, okay. Uh, the food rations were insufficient, and they had a two-tier allocation policy. So the families of men who were still known to be fighting routinely got less food than the others. Shelter was inadequate. They're in tents. So with inadequate shelter, poor diet, bad hygiene, overcrowding, you're going to get malnutrition, and you're also going to get endemic diseases, contagious diseases, so measles, typhoid, dysentery, and the children are particularly vulnerable. And when they set up these internment camps, they didn't think about, uh, you know, bringing modern medical care to them. So many of the internees died. About 26,000 Boer women and children died in these camps. And 20,000 uh, Africans died in these camps, about one-sixth of the number who were interned. It's amazing that Lord Kitchener, who also, you know, conducted the whatever you want to call battle at Omdurman in mm -hmm. Sudan, is the same person who uh, set up these camps. It's it's quite a, quite a record. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he's not done. He's not done. This kind of pressure uh, did succeed in persuading some of the Boers to stop fighting. Uh, and some of them set up a peace committee and tried to persuade commando groups to give up. Some Boers actually served on the British side. I don't know how much combat they saw, but certainly they served in mounted columns or, or helped the British. Uh, over 5,000 of them and they were called joiners. Meanwhile, some of the people who'd given their parole took up arms again and went to join the commandos. So the war goes on, it's just it got nastier and uglier. So of the active commando groups, Christian DeWet was still fighting in the Orange Free State. He led a raid into the Cape Colony, and that did not go well. He was lucky to escape back across the Orange River. He was pretty quiet through 1901 just because of the 
effectiveness of the British sweeps. He's, De Wet spent most of his time avoiding being captured and, and managed to escape a big drive against him, but lost 300 of his men. So he's not having much of an impact. He's just trying to stay free. Uh, Coups de la Rey was more active in the western Transvaal, fought a few small battles, uh, attacked a British column in February of 1902. And when Lord Methuen, by now second in command, pursued him with the British force, de la Rey turned on them, ambushed, and captured Methuen. Uh, this success, though, all it achieved was that the British poured in reinforcements and went after de la Rey with you know, everything they could muster. Uh, one of his sub-commanders, Jan Kemp, attacked a larger uh, British force in a good position and lost heavily. So here's a pattern of the late war. The Boers still have, you know, their little successes, but they just can't afford any setbacks or defeats because they cannot replace their losses. They don't have fresh troops coming in. And I don't know about their supply uh, condition at this stage. So there were two commandos still active in the eastern Transvaal, Louis Botha and Ben Viljoen. Botha even invaded Natal again. Both of them won a couple of engagements, and that just made them targets of bigger and bigger sweeps and more scorched earth drives. And they were eventually forced to retreat to the border of Swaziland. Uh, Viljoen stayed quiet, so he was left alone. I mean, he's still in arms, but not doing anything, and he was later captured. The Cape Colony stayed quiet, mostly quiet. Now, most of the Dutch people there sympathized with the Boers, but there were no major uprisings against the British. A, a couple of small commandos in the middle of the Cape, and some of these actions are described as the least chivalrous of the war. Uh, both sides are using intimidation of civilians as part of their tactics, and some captured rebels were executed by the British for treason. So the Boers in the Transvaal and the Orange Free State are going to be treated as enemy combatants, right? But if you're fighting in the Cape, that makes you a rebel. And that means that you can be uh, executed. And they made some of the executions public just to send a message. I thought I would include this incident. There was a... Uh, the incident at Lily Fontaine. It, it was the first Methodist mission in South Africa in January, uh, January thirty first of nineteen o two. Sorry, sorry. Are Methodists American? Basically, is it a no? The Methodists began in Britain. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, a number of them went to America. Yes, but like, it's not a. It's the, these people are not Americans necessarily. No, no. These okay. these missionaries set up a basically a mission at Lelyfontein among the Nama people. So in January 31st of 1902, a Boer commando named Maritz, Mani Maritz, uh, he and his men rode into Lelyfontein, uh, arrested the chief missionary, and handed out proclamations threatening death to any of the residents and missionaries who supported the British in the war. So the Nama people were the ones who lived around Lillyfontaine were angered by these threats and there was a, a scuffle and a fight. 30 of the Boers were killed and seven of the Nama. 
So Maritz retreated, but then he called for reinforcements and the following day invaded Lillefontaine and carried out a massacre. Uh, 43 Nama were killed and an estimated 100 wounded. And some of them were massacred while taking shelter in the mission church. And then the outpost was completely destroyed by Maritz's troops. Then they went hunting for survivors and refugees from the massacre and killing them. And then others were captured and forced to work as slave labor, cooking and cleaning for the troops. Now, the history of the Nama is pretty tragic. Yeah, I was just looking at... um... I was just looking at a map. I mean, South Africa is huge and the border is far, but it's like the closest neighbor is Namibia. And Namibia, I suppose, is where um, most of the Nama are from. And that's also where the the German... We'll, read, we'll talk about the Germans, uh, the you know, the couple of like outright genocides in, that the Germans committed just after the scramble. Uh, yeah, one of them was against the Nama, and another the Herero. But we'll we'll get to those uh, in a few episodes, I guess. Yeah. Well, there was considerable sympathy for the Boers in the rest of the world, certainly in in Europe and America. You know, the the image of big bad Britain picking on the poor little Boers. And at this stage, it's it's late in the war, and and nobody's coming to help them. But episodes like these do not help public perception of the Boers and their cause. It's, it's an atrocity. One of the guys there was Dennis Wrights, and he wrote uh, a report to General Smuts, and he wrote this. We found the place sacked and gutted, and among the rocks beyond the Berry houses lay 20 or 30 dead, still clutching their antiquated muzzle loaders. This was Maritz's handiwork. He had ridden into the station with a few men, to interview the European missionaries when he was set upon by armed Hottentots, these are the Nama, he and his escorts narrowly escaping with their lives. To avenge the insult, he returned the next morning with a stronger force and wiped out the settlement, which seemed to many of us a ruthless and unjustifiable act. General Smuts said nothing, but I saw him walk past the boulders where the dead lay, and on his return he was moody and curt. Uh, apparently this letter was made public because Maritz responded. According to Wrights, General Smuts would have rather approved if he had seen our own bodies there. I can assure them that we had to fight hard for our lives that day in front of the church, and if the Hottentots had got the upper hand, they would have treated us cruelly. That's cl- classic. Yeah. <laughs> Just classic. Yes, what we had they to They would have them. done... They would have done worse to us. Yeah. Yeah. Maritz was never punished for Lily Fontaine. Uh, in 1916, this is long after the war, he led an uprising and <coughs> again got off very lightly, considering that there was another uprising in 1916 in uh, Dublin. The punishments given to the Irish rebels and to Maritz, very different. He uh, went to prison for six years and, and was it issued a heavy fine and released from prison two years later. That, that's the punishment for rebellion if you're Boer. Yeah, they tried to, yeah. 
It's that it's that uh, merciful in victory kind of, mm. kind of vibe, right? This was during World War One, though, mm. when mm. it was part of the British Empire. Yeah. So treason depends on who you are, I guess. Uh, General Smuts had 3,000 men in the Cape Colony, and he was fighting until the very end of the war. I don't know if you've heard the name before. Oh, yeah. I mean, he comes up. I think we've even mentioned him in previous episodes. Nope. Yeah, I'm not sure if we... Yeah, I think we did. Jan, Jan Smuts, right? Jan Smuts, later on Prime Minister of South Africa. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dennis Wrights chose exile rather than sign an oath of allegiance to Britain. So principal principal guy. Principal guy has to go and leave the uh, leader of the massacre and later rebel <laughs> allowed <laughs> to stay. Oh, uh, well. Now, the British uh, dealt with their prisoners of war in an interesting fashion. They were afraid that if they set up a prison camp that they could be freed by sympathetic locals. And they were also having trouble supplying uh, their own troops in South Africa, so they didn't want the added burden of sending supplies for prisoners of war. So they decided to ship them overseas. 5,000 Boer prisoners went to St. Helena, the island in the South Atlantic where Napoleon, Napoleon. was finally interned. 5,000 went to uh, Ceylon, to Sri Lanka, and they also sent more of them to Bermuda and to India, total of 26,000 Boer prisoners of war shipped to other Well, British. I mean they did, they've they've been doing that with leaders in of the South African or I mean of the African like when Africans were fighting them. Right. They would ship them. And I guess they did that even to Chinese, right? Like when they the opium war, yep. they shipped Lin Zhishu and other people off to India for the most part. Yeah. So coming I Covering this stuff, I came across the name of Emily Hobhouse, and I thought I had heard it before, and I, I, for, I forgotten the connection. So I had to look her up. And interesting, interesting story. She was uh, a British welfare campaigner, an anti-war activist, and a pacifist. So she's one of these well-connected um, upper middle-class woman from Britain who heard about what was going on and decided to go to South Africa in person. So she founded the Distress Fund for South African women and children while still in Britain and in December of 1900 sailed to the Cape Colony to supervise the distribution of the funds that she'd collected. And while she was there, she persuaded the authorities to let her visit several British concentration camps and to deliver the aid in person. I don't know how she managed to do that. Well, it, maybe they weren't. I mean, I, I imagine when they introduced the term, they didn't really think of it as a bad thing. Like it didn't have the resonance that it has now, right? Like, yeah. oh, I'd like to, I'd like to visit one of your concentration camps. Oh, okay, good, good lady. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm sure she was pretty persistent and determined. And maybe you don't want to annoy her, her relatives back in England. It also suggests that there's nobody in charge. You know, there's no central organization that would realize this is a bad idea. So yeah, she got into the camps and she wrote a report 
entitled uh, Report of a Visit to the Camps of Women and Children in the Cape and Orange River Colonies. And she delivered her report to the British government in June of 1901. And she was pretty clear. She talked about culpable neglect. And this is an eyewitness report, and she didn't spare anybody. Uh, here's a couple of quotations from it. They went to sleep without any provision having been made for them and without anything to eat or to drink. I saw crowds of them along railway lines in bitterly cold weather, in pouring rain, hungry, sick, dying, and dead. Soap was not dispensed. The water supply was inadequate. No bedstead or mattress was procurable. Fuel was scarce and had to be collected from the green bushes on the kopjes, the small hills, by the people themselves. The rations were extremely meager, and when, as I frequently experienced, the actual quantity dispensed fell short of the amount prescribed, it simply met famine. So she did an expose on the conditions in the camps. I left out some of the more harrowing stuff. There are also uh, photographs that are pretty awful of uh, malnourished children dying. Yeah, this reminds me of Peter Bryce's, Dr. Peter Bryce's 1907 report on the Indian schools of Manitoba and the Northwest Territories. Hey, it's mm. like someone just shows up writes a report and it's like what's what's in here yeah interesting too that when uh, hophouse returned to england she was greeted with scathing criticism and hostility from the british government and from most of the media eventually yeah. though she succeeded in getting more funding to help boer uh, civilians and she was supported by the British liberal leader at the time, uh, Campbell Bannerman, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, who denounced what he called the methods of barbarism. Finally, the British government agreed to set up the Fawcett Commission to investigate her claims. So Millicent Fawcett went to South Africa and corroborated Hobhouse's account. Hophouse uh, returned to Cape Town in October of 1901, was not permitted to land, and was eventually deported five days after arriving, no reason being given. Hmm. So the, the British authorities. Uh, yeah. So there's a statue of Hobhouse at the parish church of St. Ive in Cornwall. And uh, I have to say, even after that episode we did on statues, I'm okay with that one. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, there's also a town in South Africa named after her and a couple of schools and that sort of thing. So the South Africans know who she was. Um, also, I found this little bit. A, a Baptist minister in Liverpool, Charles Aked, 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 I think. So Baptist minister, 22nd of December, 1901, uh, on Peace Sunday, said, Great Britain cannot win the battles without resorting to the last despicable cowardice of the most loathsome cur on earth, the act of striking a brave man's heart through his wife's honor and his child's life. 
the cowardly war has been conducted by methods of barbarism. The concentration camps have been murder camps. And after giving that sermon, a crowd followed him home and broke the windows of his house. Nice. So there's, yeah, some kind of an anti-war movement, or not movement, but anyway, people anyway. Yeah. But also the pro-war jingoists who will not hear any criticism. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Packenham, a historian, wrote of Kitchener's policy. No doubt the continued hullabaloo at the death rate in these concentration camps and Milner's belated agreement to take over their administration helped change Kitchener's mind sometime at the end of 1901. By mid-December, at any rate, Kitchener was already circulating all column commanders uh, with instructions not to bring in women and children when they cleared the country, but to leave them with the guerrillas. Viewed as a gesture to liberals on the eve of the new session of Parliament at Westminster, it was a shrewd political move. It also made excellent military sense as it greatly handicapped the guerrillas now that the drives were in full swing. It was effective precisely because, contrary to the Liberals' convictions, it was less humane than bringing them into the camps, though this was of no great concern to Kitchener. So partly because of you know, public criticism of his concentration camps, Kitchener decided, all right, we'll just drive the women and children you know, from their homes and leave them to the Boer commanders to look after. It'll be harder on them and, and we'll look better. I guess the most unfortunate thing about Kitchener's tactics is that they were working. Uh, there were only about 15,000 Boers still fighting, but the war was dragging on and as you pointed out, it was costing Britain money. Also, the attitude to the war at home was changing slowly, slightly. Both sides uh, were afraid of the consequences of arming Africans and of the possible consequences afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you've, you've described this in a lot of detail, but it didn't, it's not that long of a war. It's only three years and like the most active part was just one year. Yeah. So, yeah, you could see, you know, they want it, why they would want to keep it short, because they, the longer it goes, the more likely it is that somebody's going to get this idea. <laughs> you know, why don't we give uh, the natives something to fight for us? And then, yeah, if, if you well, do I'd... it, then they'll do it and they'll do it. And then the natives will be in charge of the whole country. Yeah, well, at the start of the war, there's sort of an, a, like a gentleman's agreement, an unwritten agreement that it'll be a white man's war and we won't, you know, bring in the Africans. So the British appealed to the Zulu chiefs to stay neutral. President Kruger sent emissaries to them as well, asking them to stay out of it. But uh, there are some, <laughs> some Africans with memories and some old scores to be settled. So the Swazis were uh, particularly eager to enter the war, hoping to get back some of their land from the Boers. And of course, the British eventually started arming and using large numbers of Africans to supplement the blockhouse uh, 
policy and to join them in the sweeps and, and the drives pursuing the Boer commandos. So quite a few Africans were armed and uh, fought with and conspicuous gallantry uh, as scouts, messengers, watchmen in blockhouses, auxiliaries. I, I gather you're going to mention the Indians later, but they're, they also, the British also wanted to make sure Indians didn't fight. Yes. Non-combat uh, roles. South yeah. Africa. So Cut. there are eight, something like 18,000 Indians. Gandhi yep. made a big deal of organizing South Africa, um, Indian ambulance men and stuff to oh, prove so to the British. Yeah. To prove to the British that we're men. Lacerdo wrote about it. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, and some others, but yeah. So it's not like a, I'm not, not super proud of, <laughs> of that phase of Gandhi's life, but whatever it is. What uh, it is. He had an agenda. Yeah. 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 So uh, there were some other uh, disreputable episodes. So May of 1902 at Holkrantz in the Southeastern Transvaal, uh, a Zulu group had their cattle stolen and their women and children tortured by the Boers as a punishment for assisting the British. And the local Boer uh, officer sent an insulting message to the tribe, challenging them to take back their cattle. And, oh, that's uh, a good idea. How'd that work out for him? They, they did. The Zulus attacked at night, and in a pretty bloody conflict, uh, 56 Boers were killed and 52 of the Zulus. The British offered peace terms to the Boers on various occasions, uh, notably as early as March of 1901, but they were rejected. Uh, Botha and others known as the Bitter Enders uh, rejected their deals. Again, doesn't it sound a bit like the Civil War? Yeah, sure does. Like, you can see the writing on the wall. You're not going to win. Now we're just going to keep fighting to the bitter end. Both but it's like, also it's also like as you'll as we'll see like it's also a lot like the civil war in the sense that they lost the war but they very much won the peace at the mm -hmm. expense of the black people uh, of their part of the world. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the last of the uh, the Boer commanders finally surrendered in May of 1902, and the Treaty of Vriniging was signed. British terms were generous. The Boers were given three million pounds for reconstruction and were promised eventual, uh, if limited, self-government, which was granted in 1906 and 1907. And I find this amazing. That's four years after the war and you're granting self-government to these people that you had to fight against. But it, the treaty did end the existence of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State as independent Boer republics. They are now firmly annexed and part of the British Empire. And in 1910, the British went ahead and organized the Union of South Africa as a dominion of the British Empire along the lines of Canada. Canada. Um, you know, speaking of the generosity of the settlement, uh, Lord Milner had lunch with Botha and De La Rey, and he tells them they've received the most generous settlement in history. Um, and when these uh, generals who'd fought 
the British went to London, they were, uh, according to Magubane, someone quoted by Magubane, they were met with an enthusiastic reception wherever they went. Um, And the idea is, you know, it's not a mystery in the sense that what the British want uh, is served at this point by this piece and the same way it was served by the war. Um, John Buchan, uh, this this famous, um, I guess, imperialist writer who wrote a lot about Canada. I think it was Canadian. Um, 1903 book on the African colony. If the Boer is once won to our side, we shall have secured one of the greatest colonizing forces in the world. If the plateau of our central and East African possessions are to be permanently held by the white man, I believe it will be by this people who have never turned their back upon a country which seemed to promise good pasture land. (laughs) It's it's like quite an award, right? Congratulations, you guys. You have never turned your back on good pasture land. Um, Buchan also, you know, it's like that Cecil Rhodes dream, right, of bringing back... uh, America back into the fold. He says, I define imperialism as the closer organic connection under one crown of a, non- a number of autonomous nations of the same blood. Um, so it's a fundamentally racial program. Um, and there's um, another one, Robinson, who's talking about uh, the Union of South Africa and what it means. Um, he's an advisor to Lord Roberts. Lord Roberts was the the guy who came to change the military mm-hmm. equation, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's an advisor to Roberts. He said, we aren't tossing up a paper constitution. We are lay- laying the political foundations of a continent, which will be the keystone of an arch of our empire. <laughs> I mean, it's not the arch, but it's a, an arch, which again shows how big, I guess, these imperialists think, right? Oh my God. <laughs> The, uh, the impact of the Boer War, multifaceted and, and quite important. I mean, the first, first impact is how expensive it was. The British spent 200 million pounds, which is quite, quite a large yeah. sum. Yeah, that's again, like that was, those are the kinds of numbers that they, the American assessed the value of the, the annual value of all the mines, right? Or something mm. like it was some it was some it wasn't or maybe not even maybe maybe the amount of gold in well i'd have to go back to our notes for the previous episode but we talked about this like that is a huge amount of money for, even for that time and like compared to the entire egyptian national debt it's it's huge yeah but that's Im- okay because the money came from <laughs> british taxpayers and, yeah <laughs> and other colonies not from india roads <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah, so. and and then the uh, the human cost as well. So, the British mobilized three hundred and sixty five thousand uh, white troops and eighty two thousand colonial troops. So that's another major effort, and they suffered a hundred thousand casualties uh, among them. Not all battle casualties by any means. Disease, of course, being the largest cause. Uh, the Boers raised 87,000 fighters and lost 7,000 dead. But somewhere between 20 and 30,000 uh, died in the concentration camps. And wow. as you've rightly pointed out, there were even more African casualties. But there 
Casualty rates aren't recorded. So, um, back to Magubane and the the issues right after the war, the labor issue that he was talking about just comes right back onto the table. <laughs> so the minor, the mines aside, remember we're now, um, if you listen to our China series, um, you know, this is just around or after the boxer uprising. Um, so they're planning to partition China. Now they're, you know, they have completely got China kind of under their thumb. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, they've got maps for the scramble for China, the same way that they had for Africa. Um, so that, and, and the Chinese workers, the kind of indentured Chinese workers is a, you know, like the Indians is a, is a big source for the alternative to slave labor. Right. So they, the mines wanted to do this experiment um, with Chinese workers after 1902 to address the so-called African labor shortages uh, which one writer, Warsfold, wrote about in 1913. Um, he said they were disturbed. The African workers were disturbed and unsettled, partly despising their former Boer masters and expecting great things from the British, whose victory, as they believed, would bring a laxer discipline and more generous wages. When they were disillusioned, many of them, rather than accept the old scale wages, would refuse to work at all and go back to their crawls. Of course, then the so attempted solution by the British is to uh, impose taxes to try to force them to work. Um, the miners explicitly <clears throat> are demanding lower wages to increase the efficacy of the individual labor by making it necessary for him to work for a longer period on the mines if he were to dis- secure the desired amount of money and reducing materially the cost of Development and production, it would make possible to work mines of low-grade ore whose gold deposits otherwise could not be extracted at profit. So, you know, they usually try to, in t- today, uh, you know, capitalists usually try to make it a little, sound a little better, <laughs> like do more with less or something. But mm-hmm. here they're like, hey, we have to pay them less because that'll make it more profitable. <laughs> well, also, um, we have to keep them there longer, right? If we pay yeah. them generously they'll work part of the year and then and then they'll take off and they'll take off yeah Yeah. um the labor commission uh says in 1903 uh the british south african aboriginal native has not yet fully met the labor requirements of the country so to try to address this labor question is when they really want to dispossess africans of the land because they figure if Africans have land, then they won't work. Um, if they can vote, they'll end up in charge. So they have they have to kind of take away land and votes, right? So that's mm. their um, that's the thing. Magubane quotes uh, Simons and Simons, nineteen sixty nine, saying Africans lost in bargaining capacity under British rule, which turned the republics into colonies, restored authority to the defeated cultivated their loyalty and consolidated an alliance with them on the basis of white supremacy. Again, um, doesn't that sound like the American the South? U.S., yeah, and that's exactly what The Nation, which a magazine that's still um, kind of a liberal magazine, you know, in, in the U.S. today, to this day, it was founded actually in the by abolitionists, I guess, even decades before this. But in 1909, The Nation says the situation parallels our own South uh, but in South Africa, it is the white man who is the intruder, 
well, unlike the U.S. <laughs> anyway, um, who is the intruder. And unless he is willing to accept the cheerful policy of extermination for the native, the white man must make his make up his mind and grant him rights. Um, in fact, uh, the opposite's the case. The U.S. is actually the inspiration for South Africa, uh, especially post-Reconstruction. Mm. Um, and the, so the Native Affairs Commission, the Transvaal Indigency Commission, and the Select Committee on White Labor all studied the U.S. example very carefully. And Magubane says... The Jim Crow system was a vindication of the disenfranchisement of the Africans in South Africa. Mm. Um, so Britain in the piece, the Viriniging settlement, it gives Britain control of the most fertile and highly mineralized districts and those ideal for British settlers, uh, according to Wars World 1913. And Keppel Jones, 1949, also quoted by Magubane, uh, compares the post-Civil War U.S. to the post-Boer uh, War South Africa. It says, the comparison is very much in favor of the British reconstruction of South Africa. In America, 12 years elapsed before the last of the Southerners were free to govern themselves. And by then, the rights of the Negro were enshrined in the federal constitution. In South Africa, the period of was five years and political rights were not given to the native. Milner was not a Lincoln, and the British South Africans were not New Englanders. So again, uh, that fear that you know they were gonna the one side or the other was gonna do what the um, Americans, what Lincoln did, right, and actually empower the Africans was a big motivator for trying to get the get the peace um, organized. Um, yeah, and Smuts says in a p in a speech in Kimberley. Um, or maybe it's not Jan Smuts. Maybe it's someone else. J.C. Smuts. But it's the him. name is... It's him? Yep. Uh, he says at a speech in Kimberley, unless the white race closes its ranks, its position will soon become untenable in the face of the overwhelming majority of prolific barbarism. Let us defy Negrophilists, optimists, and well-meaning mischief makers. Let us put our shoulder to the wheel and see whether it is possible by persuasion, first of all, by gentle compulsion, if necessary, to discipline the native into something worthy of our civilization and his humanity. As Asia was the home of religious despotism and Europe that of feudal monarchy, as the new world is the home of popular democracy, so the mission of the newer world, if I may use the term, is a grand racial aristocracy. So he actually wrote one of the clauses in the peace treaty, the Viriniging Treaty, excluding African colored and Indian from the franchise and loading up the income and property qualifications. Kitchener uh, included this clause in the treaty that the question of granting the franchise to natives will not be decided until after the introduction of self-government. <laughs> um, Smuts in 1906 writes to someone named Merriman who replies to him, now, taking myself as an example of those who are not Negrophilists, but at the same time believers in our native policy, I do not like the natives at all, and I wish we had no black men in South Africa, but they are there. And the only question is how to shape our course so as to maintain the supremacy of our race and at the same time do our duty. The drawbacks of our system are the fear that in some time the natives, owing to their numbers, may swamp the white man, and that white people truckle to natives for their votes. 
But the problem is history tells us that the future is to the workers. So we would be building on a volcano of suppressed force, which must someday burst forth in a destroying flood. Smuts replies, I sympathize profoundly with the native races, but I don't believe in politics for them. As far as the natives are concerned, politics will, to my mind, only have a unsettling influence. Um, so they want to they want to spare the um, fate of Jamaica. Um, so it's uh, you know they're trying to main- solve the labor problem. They need the African labor, but they don't want their beloved white man's country to inevitably degenerate into a mongrelized society like Brazil or Portuguese East Africa next door. That's uh, John Sell um, quoted in Magubane from 1982. Now, there's a couple of other things from Pakenham, which I have uh, on my desk in my hands right now. Pakenham's Scramble for Africa, which, as I've said, you know, you've quoted him. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's an uprising in Natal in March 1906 of Native people. Um, in February, there had been some kind of fracas between the Natal police and a party of Zulus armed with assegais who were refusing to pay the new poll tax. The poll tax, of course, is to compel them to work. Um, two white policemen had been stabbed to death in the fracas. The Natal government had reacted swiftly. Martial law was declared on the 9th of February. Two Zulus were executed after a drumhead court-martial. By mid-March, a further 12 Zulus were condemned to be executed for the same crime. It was then that the CO heard the affair and was shocked by the severity of the punishment. Churchill drafted an unusually sharp telegram to the governor of Natal, concluding you should suspend executions until I have had the opportunity of considering your further opportunities, uh, observations. The ministers in Natal found it outrageous. A storm of abuse (laughs) descended on the baffled experts from touchy white colonials all over South Africa. The ripples even spread to Australia and New Zealand. The entire government of Natal resigned in protest. The resignations were then withdrawn, but only after Elgin had explained that he had not tried to question the rights of Natal to punish its black subjects. All the CO had wanted was to be kept informed. Um, After this climb down, Elgin had to watch more or less helplessly as the Natal government stamped out a series of uncoordinated risings with the iron heel of an army of white volunteers and black mercenaries. Uh, the revolt had been led by a minor Zulu chief called Bambata. Bambata's rising was a pale shadow of the bloodthirsty revolts by Ndebele and Shona that had threatened Cecil Rhodes Colony 10 years before. Um, and so uh, at, and for their part, the Zulus uh, learned a bitter lesson about the realities of power. At least 3,000 pitifully armed men, ill-armed men were shot down by the colonial forces, most of them hunted down like um, animals in the Nkandla forests beside Sechuayo's grave on the bank, a Zulu bank of the Tugelo, or flushed out of the lairs in the scrubby hills on the Natal side of the weather. Bambada was killed in June, his head cut off by an army doctor for purposes of identification it was claimed um, the governor of natal proposed that britain pay for an imperial medal to be struck for the colonial uh, heroes um, prisoners were lashed um, elgin took the frustration uh, so churchill <laughs> 
Churchill was kind of pissed off about all this. So Churchill apparently said, there were, I think, nearly a dozen casualties among these devoted men in the course of their prolonged operations, and more than four or even five are dead on the field of honor. A copper medal bearing Bombata's head to be struck at the expense of the colony seems to me the most appropriate memento of their sacrifices and their triumphs. Nice. So he's kind of sarcastic um, about it. Uh, But there's uh it's it's the, there's kind of a lesson where um Packenham says you know the white ruling class was too weak and insecure to be trusted with two million um african subjects so the cure was to merge natal with the other south african states uh from which a more humane policy could be enacted um there's another <laughs> <laughs> there's another um there's some other churchill quotes uh there's one where he says uh, i guess i guess these are of different incidents that i should probably tell in the south african um i mean in the east african context because that's the that's a better context for me to tell these stories um so yeah there there this is how uh, this is what I mean, again, like the analogies with the post-reconstruction are interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's like they're really putting it down with an iron fist. Um, And we're headed for, I guess, yeah, we can can talk a little bit more about the, uh, about what happens later. But basically, this is the settlement of the Boer War sets us up for the apartheid system so 1936 the qualified african franchise is eliminated the apartheid laws are imposed in 1948 uh the colored franchise is eliminated in 1956 um and again to give you a sense of the scale of money being made in south africa like we talked about how wealth how much wealth there is in the congo but south africa blows the congo out of the water um I think this is Rodney, maybe Magubane. In the mid-1950s, British investments in South Africa were estimated at 860 million pounds, yielding a stable profit of 15%, Mm. uh, 120 million pounds every year. But this is the 50s, so it's not, you know, you can't compare 200 million, 1900 pounds to uh, 1950 pounds. But most mining companies had returns well above that average. De Beers Consolidated made a profit that was both phenomenal and consistently high between 26 and 29 million throughout the 1950s Mm. yeah and these two things go hand in hand so there's the the white population banding together and then there's all the money from the gold and diamond mines and right after the war there's imperial administration that has no accountability to the electric the electorate back in Britain. So you have these imperial administrators with complete freedom to go about rebuilding the economy, which is built on gold. And that means forced labor in the gold mines. And at the same time, they're working in the former Boer Republics to get these white people on board as, you know, British South Africans and, and, you know, later they'll just, you know, change that slightly, white South Africans. 
Yeah. And that's why they were so ready to grant self-government so quickly afterwards. You know, we're on the same team here against yeah. the, the, all of the black majority surrounding us. Yeah. Boer War was also significant for the tactics that were used. Just like Spain in Cuba or the Americans in the Philippines, the British learned how to deal with insurgency, with how to deliver a counterinsurgency program. And they would use the same tactics again, particularly in uh, Malaya, the, the Malayan yeah. emergency after World War II. All and those Kenya wars, and, yeah. yeah. All those wars after, um, or like trying to prevent decolonization, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the... So the small wars are getting expensive. There is a kind of anti-imperialism, partly about the cost of war and partly, you know, partly principle. Gladstone, uh, who I know you're a big fan of, um, says the Zulus are being slaughtered for no reason other than their attempt to defend against the artillery with their naked bodies, their hearths and homes, their wives and families. Uh, He also says that famine relief in India is being interrupted to throw mothers and children from their homes to perish in the snow uh, in Afghanistan. Um, what else? What else can we say about the the long term impact of the of the Boer War? Oh, there's lots of, of little details. Uh, the commandos, the the Boer term for their fighting units, the British will borrow the name for their special forces in in World War II in 1940. And it's Churchill who wants these groups formed of commandos so that they can raid the coast of occupied Europe. Yeah, they Uh, still, I mean, today a commando, I think, is basically like some highly trained small unit, right? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. But the hit and run attack and raiding and that that sort of thing. So they definitely learned from the Boers. There's an impact uh, back in Britain. Uh, Salisbury's liberal government was considered soft on imperialism, and in the election of 1900, they were they were thrashed. Uh, that election was called the khaki election because of all the men in uniform who were being sent off to to South Africa. So there's a lesson for future governments: you don't want to be soft on imperialism. That would Wait, be the, which what, what does that mean? It's the equivalent soft. of soft on terrorism now. Oh, okay. Yeah, you have to be, you know, you have to get into these little wars and and be eager for them. But right. the conservative government, <laughs> in their turn, uh, went down pretty hard in 1906 because they had let the war drag on, and also because you know now that we've won, we can uh, indulge ourselves in public outrage at you know the use of scorched earth tactics and the conditions of the concentration camps <laughs> i think it was stan goff he's a former special forces uh, american special forces he's he was in haiti in the early 90s as part of the mission to put aristy back in power i guess it was 95 maybe mm-hmm. um and he 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 wrote once uh, something that i i really uh makes a lot of sense to me. He says, basically lib- the imperialist foreign policy is torn between like a liberal or a, he calls them neoliberals who can't, who don't know what to do when the natives resist. 
and then neoconservatives who have the answer for when the natives resist, which is to fight wars against them, but then they can't deal with the cost of the war. So they go back and forth. The liberals try to co-opt natives, but when natives actually resist, they, they're they at a loss. The conservatives try to fight the natives, but when the war gets costly, they're, they're at a loss. Hmm. And so it just you just oscillate between these two <laughs> there's, things. There's some truth in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the British learned a few things during the war that they weren't immediately apparent, but they certainly noticed afterwards. It, it became quite apparent that there were serious problems with public health in Britain. Up to 40% of the recruits turned out to be unfit for military service because they were suffering from medical problems like rickets and other poverty-related illnesses. So it's trying to get troops for war exposes the fact that you're not feeding your domestic population very well. Yeah. Oh, and wait till we get to World War One. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because well. the same lesson had to be relearned. Uh, so the South African War also is where they recruit Canadians. Uh, yeah. Australians. Uh, C.P. Lucas says it stands out as the first war in the new British Empire in which the overseas peoples collaborated with the mother country on an appreciable scale. Canada and Australia contributed 31,000 men and South Africa 52,000. So this strengthens dominion nationhood and imperial cooperation. Yeah, it's a really interesting case. Uh, I mean, from a, a Canadian perspective or Australian or, or New Zealand perspective, it leads to a big debate. So first of all, there's the immediate debate in Canada. Britain says, uh, we need troops to fight in South Africa. Well, loyal British Canadian, you know, Anglo-Canadian imperial citizens uh, throw their hats in the air and yippee, let's support the empire. But you also have uh, French Canadians who whose reaction is completely the opposite. Why would we want to help the British conquer other people? Like that that's stupid. What's in it for us? And of course, mm. there's the issue of the cost. You know, why should we pay to help Britain expand their empire? Yeah, and pay in lives. Yeah. And uh, Canadian Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, came up with a compromise trying to, you know, balance between these opposing viewpoints. You know, the Anglo-Canadians are all for it. We have to send troops. And the French Canadians are saying we shouldn't help them at all. So his compromise was uh, we will only send volunteers. And and Canada will pay for, uh, you know, organizing and, and transporting these volunteers to South Africa, where they will be, of course, equipped in British uniforms with British weapons and, and so on. So Anglo-Canadians are unhappy, we're not doing enough, and French Canadians are unhappy that we're doing anything. <laughs> so poor Laurier is yeah. trying. How, how Canadian. <laughs> how very Canadian. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So I read a, I read a book uh, about, it's basically kind of predicting or describing the decline of the current U.S. empire. I think that's what this book was. Richard Lockman, First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship. Mm. Um, and so he makes analogies to previous empires, especially the British. Um, and so he actually argues, I don't know if I agree, but he argues 
this. He says, the South African war was an instance where contra Michael Mann, I don't know who Michael Mann is or what he said, but he says contra Michael Mann, British racism weakened empire. First, Britain's unwillingness to send non-white Indian soldiers to fight white Boer rebels meant that more white Britons had to be sent to fight and die than if Britain had been able to overcome its racist queasiness at the thought of whites dying at the hands of non-whites. Second, Britain, which I, becomes a huge issue in World War One and mm-hmm. after, right? Mm-hmm. Second, Britons, while cruel to their Boer enemies, were not as brutal and hence less effective than they were in wars against non-whites, where there were no compunctions about expl- employing extreme violence. The British masses were unwilling, were as unwilling to sacrifice their lives as the elites were their money to the cause of British military power. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I think about it, but I thought I should put it in here anyway. <laughs> yeah, whereas the, the British learn an interesting lesson from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. We ask them to contribute to our war, which has n- absolutely zero in it for them. And they respond, you know, loyally with tens of thousands of men. This is wonderful. So we could actually, you know, loosen the reins a little bit and let them have slightly more independence because we know that when you know when the crunch comes they'll they'll race to help us and this is something that will carry through world war one and and two and then yeah the other issue of course is uh equipping them there's a a little well we'll bring it up when we get to world war one it's uh britain not wanting to let the production of equipment out of their own hands so the Canadian contingent had to be armed with Lee Enfield rifles, which are made in Britain. So after the experience of the Boer War, uh, where it was time-consuming and difficult for Canadian troops to get enough rifles, Canada asked permission to set up a Lee Enfield factory to manufacture these rifles in Canada. And uh, Britain said, no. We'll, We'll give you rifles when you need them. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, it will be later on. And and your uh, connection to uh, allowing non-white troops to fight brings us to uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi, who showed up in Natal in 1893. So it's a mere seven years later, uh, 1900, when Ga- Gandhi volunteered to form a group of stretcher bearers. He, he organized the Natal Indian... Uh, ambulance corps and his goal was to disprove the stereotype that Hindus were not fit for manly activities involving danger and exertion this goes back to the Indian tradition where the British had respect for the martial races uh, particularly Muslims but also the uh, Gurkhas of Nepal and Sikhs and so on so this stereotype that Hindus are not fit for war. So. <laughs> yeah. They developed this after 1857, basically. All yeah. the people that were fighting them are non-martial races. So we and won't be recruiting those guys. No, and we'll use the <laughs> They other, might mutiny. <laughs> we'll use the other guys to uh, fight against them. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Gandhi succeeded in raising 1,100 uh, Indian volunteers. They were trained, medically certified to serve on the front lines, and they were they were present at the Battle of Colenso, 
at the Battle of Spion Kop, Gandhi and his bearers moved to the front line and carried wounded soldiers for miles to a field hospital because the terrain was too rough for ambulances. Uh, Gandhi and 37 other Indians received the Queen's South Africa Medal. Beginning of a career. And yeah, his goals kind of expanded dramatically after that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Winston Churchill, you mentioned before, uh, made his name for the first time uh, in the Boer War. He, He served in the Sudan, but, you know, I don't think that would have made him famous. What did was that he went to South Africa as a war correspondent for the Morning Post. So I don't know if you knew this about Churchill, but he was not wealthy. In fact, he no, was I in, didn't know that. He was in financial trouble most of his life. <laughs> it he he borrowed heavily from friends, and it's one reason why he wrote so prolifically. It was honestly to make money because he just was not he wasn't wealthy at all. So here he is working as a war correspondent for the Morning Post. So he's 26 years old. He goes to South Africa and he's captured by the Boers. So they put him in a prison camp in Pretoria from which he escaped and successfully <laughs> rejoined the British Army. So he made a name for himself. I mean, and this is during the black days of the war, right? The British are losing battles right, left, and center, and everything's going wrong. But hey, but Winston Churchill escaped from the Boers. Oh, Read all about it in the morning. Lucky Winston Churchill. Yep. And your favorite, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author and creator of the Sherlock Holmes stories, mysteries. Service I think of... I think his service was quite elementary, if you ask me. Oh my gosh. Well, that was bad. That was bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> he served as a volunteer doctor in the Langman Field Hospital at Bloemfontein. So I didn't realize that he was a doctor. Well, Watson had to come from somewhere. I guess so. Mind you, being a doctor isn't like eight years of, you know, four years of undergrad and eight years of residency back then, right? <laughs> But when did he write the stories? Because I thought Watson served in Afghanistan. He did serve in Afghanistan. He did serve in Afghanistan. So I mean, I think he started writing after this. Nineteen. Okay. I think well, the before, first one. Before he wrote uh, about Holmes, he wrote a pamphlet that was distributed and, and translated: "The War in South Africa: Its Cause and Conduct." Wherein oh, he... I'm wrong. I'm wrong. A Study in Scarlet is 1887. Oh, there the you first, go. The first short story is 1887. So, so. he's already a famous author and goes mm-hmm. to serve as a volunteer doctor. Uh, yeah, he uh, justified the reasoning behind the war and the handling of the conflict itself. In response to complaints about concentration camps, he pointed out that over 14,000 British soldiers had died of disease during the conflict, as opposed to the 8,000 killed in combat. And at the height of the epidemics, he was seeing 50 to 60 British soldiers die each day in a single ill-equipped and overwhelmed military hospital. But what's the point? I I fail to see how the premise uh, connects to the conclusion here. Well, he's saying you're criticizing us for allowing people to die of disease and, you know, whatever in these concentration camps well our soldiers are dying of disease 
as well. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I know. War it doesn't, is, make so... Me, doesn't make me like it much better. <laughs> so war is hell or whatever. That's where you're going. Yeah, yeah I guess okay. so. Kind of. Um, there were so many military lessons learned uh, from this. What's interesting is what the British learned about guerrilla warfare and how to counter it. Those lessons they took to heart. But it's amazing how everybody who observed, just as they all observed the Civil War and learned nothing from it, but they all seemed to miss the point that frontal attacks on trenches were not going to be successful. Everybody seemed to miss that point with uh, pretty tragic consequences. But they may have got the point that having trenches is good. <laughs> oh, no, they did. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Just that so, attacking them is not... <laughs> they got yeah. some something out of it. Uh, meanwhile, the British were shocked to discover how unpopular they were in the world. Pretty much all of Europe sympathized with the Boers. There's the David and Goliath syndrome, of course. But they were all hoping to see Britain take a fall. And they all uh, claimed to be revolted by the concentration camps, by the scorched earth policy. I mean, never mind how hypocritical that all was, but the British reaction was, was stunned surprise. Like, why? why don't <laughs> After they... all we've done for you. <laughs> yeah. Why don't they like us? And they didn't have a George W. Bush around to explain that, you know, they hate us for our freedom. Freedom, yeah. So it made the British cabinet realize that their policy of splendid isolation, I mean, we'll cover this more in the, in the series on World War I, but the British had decided that they would avoid entangling alliances and, mm. and continental commitments. And yeah, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> yeah, their, their policy of splendid isolation uh, basically meant we have no more friends. We have no friends. And that was worrisome, especially as they began to find themselves uh, being faced with competition and a, a large and rapidly growing British Navy. They became very Ger alarmed. Ger German Navy? Yeah, German? sorry. German yeah. Navy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's, uh, you know, as we as we move, we're moving on to East Africa and let's let me leave you all with this note because we're leaving South Africa now um, with basically with the 1910 South Africa Act. Um, Hobhouse, not Emily Hobhouse, no. a different Hobhouse was wrote wrote in 1904 that the Africans' manifest destiny is to assist in the development of the gold mines for the benefit of humanity in general and the shareholders in particular. So it's another one of these, uh, you know, we've decided that this is going to be what you uh, what you do for, for humanity. Uh, Lord Balfour, though, uh, wonders um, how to solve this problem because he says, with the black races of Africa and those same races transported to America, for the first time, we have the problem of races as vigorous in constitution, capable of increasing in number, in contact with white civilization. And plus, uh, our white race loves freedom. I don't believe that any man can approach this question wisely who thinks all men are equal in that sense. To suppose that the races of Africa are in any sense equals of men of European descent, so far as government, as society, as the 
higher interests of civilization are concerned, really is an absurdity, which every man must put out of his mind if he is to solve the problem at all. Um, <laughs> the problem, Balfour continues, is if anyone believes that the difference between races is fundamental, uh, you cannot give them equal, you cannot give you know, non-white races equal rights without threatening the whole fabric of civilization. And I'm um, going to hear a little bit more about Balfour, <laughs> both in the East Africa context and uh, after that as oh, well. Oh, dear. That's the Balfour of the white paper in Palestine. That's the one. Oh, Jesus. 